Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The next generation of the internet known as Web3 is a proposed change in some of the ways the internet functions, including more use of blockchain technology, much more decentralization of information, and more user control of personal data and tokenized based economics. A major opportunity could be how Web3 will enable more online trust and enable safety tools for authentication and identity management, along with other challenges around cybersecurity and privacy. Today's guest is Gabrielle Hibbert. Gabrielle is a Web3 research and developer who specializes in presenting information regarding Web3 and blockchain, specifically helping explain the decentralized ecosystem, offering use cases, and explaining why it's important that we get ahead of the relevant policy conversations. Gabrielle is a security researcher at Least Authority and will serve as a fellow at the recently created Decentralized Future Council. Gabrielle joins the podcast to discuss opportunities and challenges posed by Web3 and how the Decentralized Future Council will approach this new generation of the internet. Gabrielle, welcome to Explain to Shane. To get us started, tell us about Web.3, the Decentralized Web, and specifically you are working with the Decentralized Future Council. These are all, all fun new stuff, so explain this. Yeah, sure. So to break down Web3 very succinctly, Web3 is the web of trust, immutability, and authentication. So here at the Decentralized Future Council, what our basic mission is, is to educate policymakers by really explaining to regulators how to better embrace the centralized and decentralized web so that we can really support positive impact uh, that these new technologies can have on our greater community. So these include topics such as privacy, security, greater trust and safety online. And specifically, my work there will really focus on articulating the public interest potential for the decentralized web as being a more equitable web that can really enhance commerce, communications, and democracy, uh, in addition to discussing how the future internet can represent the values and causes of all people, regardless of geography or economy. Yeah. A lot of us are mobile users, and we've gotten used to the phrase 5G. <laughs> and some understand what that means, and other people think it's an uh, indicator on their phone. Thank you, a certain company, for doing that for the marketing plan. Um, so, when we talk about Web three, what like migrate us there? What are we going away? What are we migrating off of and enhancing towards? Yeah, so to kind of orient ourselves and frame everything, we are in Web 2. This is the iteration that most people are familiar with, and we are moving towards the new iteration, which is a more decentralized architecture or Web 3. So as I said earlier, Web 3, you can kind of think of as the web of trust. And from a systems engineering perspective, Web3 will differ in terms of that decentralized architecture. So if we think about Web2 more succinctly in, the, in terms of uh, systems engineering, Web2 relies on a centralized authority. So all trust is funneled through that centralized authority. Web3 is different. So Web3 is an interconnected uh, peer-to-peer information system 
where no single entity has sole authority. So essentially what this does at a kind of a thousand foot level is make the internet more equitable, democratized and secure. So I do have some examples that I can give to kind of illustrate what I mean by all of this. So the first example I have, and this is me speaking as a security researcher. So if we go back to the definition of Web3, this interconnected system makes it incredibly resilient. And this is very different from Web2. So in Web2, we have that sole authority. And this sole authority uh, makes the process of security a little bit more difficult. So let's say that sole authority experiences an outage or is compromised in some way by an attack. This has the potential to affect all other entities connected to it. In Web3, a single outage does not necessarily have that cascading effect due to its decentralized nature. So from a security standpoint, uh, having those interconnected peer-to-peer nodes talking to one another and that decentralized structure really helps bolster the secure foundation it has. You mentioned authentication. Give us an idea of what you're thinking about there, because I think it's very important. uh, And it's always been the challenge of we have yet to figure out a model that it, people seem to quickly want to adopt. But I'm hoping that one of the positives that have come out of COVID is going to this very digital economy, but yet the authentication part seems to still be lagging. So what, what are you thinking there? Sure. So authentication in Web3 can really be boiled down to the hashing algorithms that are routinely used. And Hashing algorithms are basically a one-way encryption uh, algorithm. So you can't go back after a piece of data has entered that hashing algorithm. Uh, It's that form of authentication that I believe that uh, people may be looking for in this, this new iteration of the web. So there is a very practical application of this. A another example that people can kind of hang their hat on in terms of relating that uh, authentication method is with the idea of permanence and preservation within the Web3 ecosystem. So currently in Web2, we have a lot of link rot or these broken links that populate our internet. And uh, if you don't know, the average lifespan of a web page is around 100 days before it's gone. So this has huge implications for preserving humanity's history and uh, really what can combat that in Web3 that ties back to that authentication piece is the idea of a decentralized file system. So it's called IPFS or the Interplanetary File System. This was created by Protocol Labs. So IPFS uh, can really combat these link rot and inefficiencies of our current internet through the use of a content identifier or CID. So this CID utilizes that hashing uh, algorithm to authenticate uh, different files and records that you may have. I get the hashing, but uh, being a longtime domain name addressing girl, DNS girl, you know, the whole web is designed decentralized, actually. You know, the, yeah. it, it's that we got outweighed with a particular group of companies just being the ones that they're winning all the time, right? You know, it's where everybody wants to go. Uh, but so I have a couple of questions there. One, I'm really curious about 100 days and then the, you know, kind of it aging out for, I'd love to know, kind of thought, think of the reason on that. And the other is I, I'm a little, I don't completely understand 
the need to then like you're is it just like kind of sounds like garbage hole like you're just taking off stuff off the web that doesn't need to exist there anymore and right now are you saying that web 2 just doesn't have an efficiency factor on that and there needs to there's a reason for there to be more tidy records kind of walk me through that yeah so i would definitely say that web 2 does need to be more efficient in terms of just thinking about the data that we host online uh, if those links no longer work who is keeping records of those files of those data of the data that we have there and that machine <laughs> yes of course we have the wayback machine uh, but Again, I am a security person, so having backups or having something that is immutable through using that content identifier or uh, that CID to make sure that that data isn't changed and stays as it was is very helpful for preservation of history. How do you see the authentication mechanism actually working? Do people have, at some point, there needs to be a trust anchor, I guess is what I should be asking. So how do you navigate that world of trust anchors so people understand that, you know, which ones are legit and which ones should be not recommended? Because we, we had that problem early on with SSL certificates, right? I mean, they, they got kind of gamed in the system and the value of them went down tremendously. So what are you thinking about from a trust anchor perspective? Yeah, definitely. So I think that is one of those topics that we need to further research and look into because although we have those algorithms that can ensure on an empirical level that something is authenticated uh, on a more, I would say, human level, making sure that the public is educated efficiently and trusts what is being put out on Web3 is essential to the progression of this next iteration of the internet. And a lot of people associate Web3 with crypto just because it's probably, you know, it, it, it really hasn't, I mean, it's going to take off now, but we're not seeing it as the mode of financial um, mechanism that we, you know, some people can't wait, it can't go fast enough and others want more you know, security mechanisms around it. Um, and then, yeah. then you get the big question of, is it a currency or is it an investment, right? You know, so there's a <laughs> yeah. through there, but, you know, wh where does crypto fit in on, on Web3? Yeah, so to provide a little bit more context, I would say that, that you know, both the wider community and policymakers do or are, are really only vaguely familiar with that one aspect of the decentralized web being, you know, cryptocurrencies. But in my take, cryptocurrencies are such a small part of the wider decentralized web ecosystem. And there's so much more uh, outside of that, such as smart contracts or these computer programs that can automatically execute control and document events and actions. So there is a lot out there <laughs> outside of cryptocurrencies. And uh, part of me being here is to make sure that the public interest uh, within technology is expressly uh, talked about and discussed. So you've written a lot about the idea of distributive justice. So kind of walk me through how that technology works and, and why do we want it? Yeah. So in August of 2021, I wrote this piece for Brandeis University's Institute for Economic and uh, Racial Justice Institute entitled Technology Needs to Achieve Distributive Justice, where really the crux of my thesis 
is to say that to achieve the best possible internet that best serves the public, we really need an internet that reflects the great diversity of our country uh, while also achieving equity and democracy. So in terms of the concept of distributive justice, kind of intersecting with the decentralized web, it really comes down to building a diverse ecosystem, right? And squaring that with public interest. In addition to making sure that sectors such as trust and safety, commerce, communications, and democracy are really enhanced to make sure that everyone gets their equitable slice of the pie, essentially. And as we all hear about, you know, bias in code, one of the best reasons to not have, or not, I mean, we don't want bias, but the problem is bias t- tends to be just sort of made of the things that we do and code is one of them. As if we don't have enough people that are of a variety of backgrounds, you know, everything tends to be the same thing. I mean, it's been this way in society for a long time. It's just that right now we're really, you know, focusing on the, on how that's going through with code and some, you know, artificial intelligence. So the Decentralized Future Council sounds really cool. It sounds like you guys are running around in like robes or something. <laughs> Tell me what your, your goals are for that group. Yeah. So our goal is to educate policymakers and really outside of that as well, the wider community on what Web3 and the decentralized web in general is. And in addition, we really want to support open source protocols to ensure that information is never compromised, abused, or ruled by a single entity. So by that, you mean just transparency in kind of every element of what's going on? Yep, exactly. And how do how do you, are you going to be auditing people? Are you asking people to join the be, kind of basically a best practices element? How are we going to imprint and then and make this happen? Yeah, so I would say it comes down to first that education piece that I've talked about for a while, and this is something that I do outside of my work with the Decentralized Future Council. I give a lot of guest lectures here and there to universities to talk about what the decentralized web is, but also in terms of my role at the Decentralized Future Council, it's about that research front as well. So research is a vital part and uh, progression of the understanding of the technology stack in general. So In addition to that, using the research there to help fuel innovation that could best suit our greater community is part of that apparatus in making this this work, right? (laughs) So putting your security hat on, what do you think is the most important thing we change as we migrate off of Web 2 to Web 3? Because as we know, God love Vint Cerf's been very candid about it. They just weren't thinking about security when they created the tools that brought us current web. So we've got authentication. You've mentioned that. Uh, we have the more distributed in, in the process, but as it's usually the humans, not the machines that cause the problems. What do you, what do you need to teach us humans so we can be safer in our environment and uh, hopefully, you know, keeping everything a little more tidy since that seems to be a theme here on this. This is, you know, have a better sense of who's on what and where, where they're going or. Yeah. So In general, there's a conversation that we have a lot in my security circle that uh, security challenges are also architectural and design challenges. There's a kind of a a tug of war going on, really. There needs to be a balance between making something as secure as possible while also making it 
usable for people who are not developers or engineers. People hate friction in the system. But <laughs> security right now is that one extra step. I'm, I'm a huge hater of passwords. I appreciate why we have to have them. I wish somebody would figure out very quickly something to replace. <laughs> that that makes my heart hurt. <laughs> I yeah, as you know, as a security uh, researcher, I find it fun to kind of teach people how to make their data more secure. And specifically, uh, speaking from my own uh, experiences and speaking with people who are much newer to the decentralized web ecosystem, it's easy for me to say, you know, here are some steps to take. One, making sure that you protect your private key and make sure that you're not giving out any of that information to people who would want to have that, making people aware of phishing and uh, many of the other topics that we talk about in security circles. Are the humans getting better at it? Are they a little more self-aware? <laughs> I would say it's it's definitely a mixed crowd, you know, and I think the reason why there are some people who are very good at securing their data and some people who may not be up to speed is due to the education piece. You know, learning about the decentralized web is it's it's a bit tough for folks who may not be familiar with the terminology and uh, the kind of the operating uh, system and being able to break it down step by step is what people and the wider community need, really. So it's basically, are there going to be gating mechanisms along the way, which will be different if we're changing the way that the current, you know, the construction of it with the DNS is, a, it's a tree. I mean, it's a decision-making tree mm -hmm. that engineers are very familiar with and they like, you know, do you, do you see it changing the, I guess, you know, I think when I think of the tree mechanism, I think of the roots then, like, are we, are we going to, you know, where do we make the change that makes this decentralization still frictionless so people don't get frustrated by the process as you do with passwords like because there's some you know anything you put in their way that is not just kind of you know makes intrinsic sense they tend to not use it and yeah. that's why you know it's the it's why the, the things that work get used and the things that might be better quality but have a little bit of a chink in their armor you know don't get used as much because it's just it's one more thing that somebody has to remember it's like two even just two-factor authentication like it's not that complicated <laughs> yet people still they have something you know they, they just they just disable it <laughs> yeah i again i think it goes back to that that balance piece you know making sure that the security measures we put in place don't make people not want to use it, right? Decrease the usability uh, while also making sure that people's data is protected. It's still kind of like a tightrope <laughs> right now. And hopefully with more research, there will be a point at which the barriers to bringing people into the community will be lessened. And at this point in time, there are a lot of different companies that are helping ease that transition. Um, but outside of that, I think there still could be a lot of growth in that arena. So uh, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, you mentioned that a lot of links break after 100 days, which so are they marketing links? Are they things that people just abandon because they come in, they have an immediate use case, and then the use case dies out within three months? Is, what, what, do you, what do you think? Sounds like you've researched this pretty well. 
Yeah, I mean, from my own experience, even so, I have, you know, ever since I kind of got acquainted with the internet during the Web One phase, I have had websites that I have no longer maintained. So they're they're gone, <laughs> way past a hundred days, and uh, they are no longer usable. And even recently. For me personally, there are websites that I tend to forget about that I created and they fall into disrepair. So this is a very common just mode of how some web pages work currently. It makes me think of you as like Picasso of the internet. Like, ah, I've heard of that piece. I got three, like I moved on. It's over there. I was like, when did I think that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And get your registrar notice. You're like, am I still paying for that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, for those interested in following this topic, what future developments should we be keeping an eye out with you in mind? Yeah, so one other thing that I did want to mention, and hopefully we can squeeze this in, but it's uh, the idea of identity management. So in my last semester at uh, my master's program, I wanted to figure out how to develop a decentralized identity. So kind of going back to what you said with, you know, having this Picasso image of uh, where your data is stored and, you know, how, you know, um, you know, where you were moving throughout the internet, the idea of a decentralized identity is something that's being actively researched. And it's something that I find fascinating. So instead of having a fixed profile that stays within a centralized authority, your identity could be more flexible and move with you through a unique identifier. And this kind of brings us really close to how we operate in the real world as we move throughout different spaces and different times. So with that, this is one of those topics that I encourage folks to look into. Uh, In addition to the work being done at Protocol Labs with IPFS and sign up for our email updates at the Decentralized Future Council once we get our website up and running. So actually, can you just walk us down a little further on that? So I want my identity, somebody is going to authenticate my identity. Do I choose a particular entity where my identity resides and then is it tokenized or how does that work? Yeah, so there are, there's so much research in this field. And I'm going to, I can walk it, walk you through an example of how I myself have conceptualized of it. So we are very used to kind of tangible markers of who we are, you know, our birth certificate, our driver's license ID. Uh, those are not necessarily secure items, you know, they can be burned in a fire, uh, you can lose them. And that's kind of, you know, pain when we have to get them replaced. So (laughs) exactly. And as I was thinking about this research question and figuring out what the, the true problem statement is, is that flexibility piece, right? So An aspect of this decentralized identity for me is making it so that there is no uh, human data attached to it. And what I I mean by that is uh, biometrics. So like your fingerprint or things that could tie you to yourself, to me, that is not a secure mode of creating a decentralized identification system. Uh, So 
again, what I had to think about was, all right, if I'm not going to use biometrics, how are we going to link who you are and use that in different spaces? So that's where the idea of having a unique identifier comes into play. So that you can basically say, type in your information, say who you are, but shield your identity by using uh, something known as a zero knowledge proof or ZK snark. So there are really, really fun cryptographers and mathematicians that are looking into how to do this at a wider scale. Uh, but it's still very much in the research early days stages. It sounds a little bit like if you use, I'm, a, I'm an Apple person. So if you use Apple Pay, um, you know, you disaggregate your actual credit card from that particular transaction. And I was in returning something once, it was like a CVS and thank God love this woman. Actually, it was Whole Foods. She's like, oh, did you use Apple Pay when you checked out? I go, yeah. She goes, that's why the receipt is not coming up. You know, like she's like, mm-hmm. it, it looked it up. She's like, okay, once she knew, she's had to go look in a different folder, basically. But <laughs> the whole idea was that, you know, you don't, it, every time I use my Apple Pay, whatever the retail outlet is, it's not actually recording my you know, credit card information, which is one more step step safety, but somebody does. I mean, she was able to figure out eventually where my transaction was. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of how I, I see all this with the whole idea of the, you know, interoperability mm-hmm. is always one of the bigger challenges, which is why even password keepers, as I you know, can't decide on one, and I have a couple of them, which is probably my problem, um, is, you know, you, you, you want that information to flow across platforms and across the network. And sometimes it works. And then you've got, you've got hardware and software as well as, you know, update applications and all that, which is, frustrating so hopefully in your plan it'll be it'll be seamless <laughs> yeah hopefully it's Fantastic. well thank you so much for joining us today we look forward to watching the work that you're doing and hearing from you in the future thank you so much for having me absolutely thanks for being on explain to shane thank you for listening to another episode of explain to shane for more episodes subscribe to the podcast on spotify apple podcasts or your preferred listening platform If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.